Welcome to episode 66 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today I have two regular panelists, Christina Bieberlake and Katie Grubbs. Hi, Christina and Katie. Hello. 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 Uh, As I said, you're both regular panelists, but let's introduce ourselves just in case anyone is new to the show. Christina, you go first. Okay, I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. I teach in the English department at Wheaton College, and I live here in Illinois with my husband, who's an Anglican priest, and our son, Donovan, who had just come in to interrupt me filming or recording this podcast to tell me about American Engine Warrior. I'm Katie Groves, and I live in Houston, Texas. I'm an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Um, I'm married to David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and together we have three children um, who are five to uh, almost three and then uh, 18 months old. So we have a lot of noise at our house and um, always crayons, everywhere crayons all the time. That sounds fun. I love crayons. <laughs> Thanks, It's guys. good until they draw on the walls and the floor, but oh, otherwise gosh. it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that sounds bad. Uh, Thank you both for introducing yourself. Uh, I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Uh, I am married to Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, One of these days we should do some sort of Christian feminist husband's takeover since several people have asked for that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I love that idea. Uh, (laughs) My husband would love that. Well, maybe uh, maybe we can put that on the calendar in the spring. Yeah, I like it. I like uh, it, too. Uh, I am currently working at Public Radio International in Minneapolis, uh, so I, I like to continue to do this podcast because it gives me the kind of academic conversations that I've been missing. So we have several uh, sort of housekeeping announcement-y things to get done before we enter into the the meat of tonight's episode, today's episode. It is night as we are recording this, but perhaps you are listening during the day. Uh, First announcement, uh, the Christian Humanist podcast is appearing at uh, a conference at Dort College, uh, Culture, Criticism, and the Christian Mind, Uh, They'll be doing a panel on November 3rd, and I believe that panel will also be a live recording of the show. Uh, If you're interested in more information about that conference, we'll post a link that you can get tickets uh, on our show notes page. So please do that. I am very sad that I am not uh, going to get to go see it. It should be super fun. A A lot of cool people there. Next thing, we said that we would start reading out the names of people who liked our Facebook page since we made a 
uh, a naked plea for more Facebook likes. Uh, thank you for complying. We're up, I think, about 30 or so likes since we, uh, since we asked you to like the page. Um, and I'm going to read out a few of those names here. Big thanks to Jules, Dawn, Shayla, Joy, Kelly, Rachel, Jamie, J-A-Y-M-E-E, Anders, Lindsay, Phil, Jeremiah, Jairus, Allison, Carol, Gail, Sarah, Naomi, Corey, Wendy, and Jamie, spelled J-A-M-I-E. So thanks to all of you. Please keep liking the page, following us, sharing uh, with your friends. We appreciate that a lot, and uh, we, we love our Facebook community. Last housekeeping announcement. Uh, we've been reading your emails and appreciating them a lot, and we'd like to give a shout-out to Becky Nelson for writing in with an episode recommendation. Uh, she would like us to do an episode on Orphan Black, which I don't watch, but I have a suspicion that, Christina, you might, because it's, it's pretty in your wheelhouse. Do you watch that show? Oh, yes. Yes, I've seen it. Yes, <laughs> of course. Yeah, I, uh, I think I remember you talking about it when we did the Twilight Zone episode. I might have. Yeah. Oh, I think Michael and I talked about it briefly. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so Becky, maybe uh, maybe Christina can uh, can put something together for you on that in the spring, uh, and maybe I'll start <laughs> watching too because I've heard it's very good. Okay, so I think we're ready to get into um, today's episode. And first, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, what led to us recording on this particular thing. This episode is on the podcast Truth Table, which is uh, made up of a panel of three black women who come from the Reformed tradition. Uh, they are Christina Edmison, Akimini Ewan, and Michelle Higgins. And the reason that we started listening to this podcast for our podcast is uh, last month when the horrible violence in Charlottesville happened uh, and we were having a conversation about white supremacy in the United States and in the church, um, we started trying to be uh, honest with ourselves in terms of uh, what this show is, what it should be, what our responsibility is in terms of uh, being Christians and speaking up against racism. And we really had to kind of come to the tough realization that, um, that we've got some work to do as a panel and as a show. That even though um, we profess anti-racism, as a panel made entirely of um, white people, white women and one white man, that we, um, we're complicit. We benefit from racist systems and white supremacist systems and that we, it was our sort of theological duty to uh, take the plank out of our own eye first, so to speak. So we put out uh, a call on the Facebook page to say, what should we do about this? Because it felt really disingenuous to me and I think to other members of this panel to um, to just put out a call and say, hey, are you a feminist of color 
who is also a Christian, do you want to be on our show? Because um, that feels tokenistic, it feels opportunistic, um, it, it doesn't feel like we're doing enough work. So as a group, we decided that what we needed to do was listen first and educate ourselves first and not make people in marginalized positions do our work for us. Uh, so a friend of the network, Carter Stepper, mentioned Truth's Table, uh, sent us along the Atlantic article about it that we're going to discuss, uh, and we're also going to discuss two episodes. So that's where we are. That's why we decided to record this particular episode. Um, and, and just while we're being really honest about our motivations, I would like to say um, I know this is a, a tricky, sensitive subject. Um, as a privileged person, I am probably going to say something or many things wrong or ignorant in the recording of this episode. Please, listeners, if I do that, call me out on it. Uh, I really want to make a sustained effort uh, to, to learn and grow and get better um, about these race-related issues. So uh, I, I know I'm speaking for everyone here. Uh, Christina or Katie, do you have uh, anything to add to that introduction? Yeah, I, uh, I agree with what you're just saying, Victoria. You said that very well. And um, I've been listening to a lot of the, the episodes these women have been doing. They're fantastic. And I support them 100%. And I don't want to be um, ever saying anything that would make them think that I would be in this camp of their, their uh, what do they call them, um, their, their false allies, their phallies, I think they said. I, I don't want to be a false ally. I want to be a real ally uh, to what these women are doing. And, and I, um, I, too, am probably going to say things that, that aren't right, but uh, forgive me in advance. Yeah, I just, um, the more I listen, and I think you're right about needing to listen first, you know, um, partly because I think the more I listen, the more I'm realizing um, kind of my own unconscious ideas or things that I never necessarily even realized I, I, I was thinking or expectations um, that I might have for different people of different races simply based on my own upbringing, which, I mean, I know we're not going to talk much about this, but, you know, growing up in, you know, right outside of Atlanta with parents who were little kids when they were integrating the schools, right, downtown Atlanta, like, there were a lot of attitudes about race around me mm -hmm. as a kid. And so, you know, I think I absorbed more of that than I realized, right? I thought that I was like, I'm good, you know, but then listening to um, these ladies and reading and really trying to learn more um, before talking about it, right? Um, I think it's been very illuminating. And so, so yeah, same thing to echo for the third time. If I say something that is unintentionally um, wrong or offensive, um, please listeners know I'm trying and, um, and, you know, working hard to try to um, understand a totally different experience than, than the one that I've, I've had before. Um, as Victoria said, when you, if you grow up in the majority race in your particular um, context, it, you do, you have a totally different experience. So. Okay, so um, we're going to start by talking about the Atlantic article, which is titled A Conservative Christian Battle Over Gender. Um, that 
title is interesting in that it doesn't mention race at all. Um, <laughs> race is, is actually pretty, uh, pretty central to what the article is about, or at least um, the, the Truth's Table ladies are, are really, um, really cognizant of, of making their issues intersectional. So it's interesting that the title of the article doesn't do that. Uh, so I'm going to give a, a, a quick summary of the article, um, and then we'll talk about its issues a bit. So it's it's a profile of um, Christina Akimini and Michelle, and also talks about um, some controversies that the gender apartheid episode of their podcast brought about. We will be discussing that episode. Um, and then it it sort of says that there are differing opinions about whether or not this sex separation in the church exists, um, what women's roles are, and how these women who seem to be dissatisfied with the sex separation that they perceive in the church should express their dissatisfaction. Um, then later in the article, there's some discussion of um, particular disagreements in uh one Presbyterian denomination, the PCA, um, which I uh, I am going to let Katie talk about since she, I know, was a PCA uh, member. Do you still go to a PCA church, Katie? So we're not PCA right now. Um, we're in a, a Southern Baptist church right now. But actually, and it's, and it's interesting, we can talk about this later. When David and I were in uh, PCA church. Um, David was a member. I was not ever a member, um, but we attended, I mean, I attended, you know, PCA church for probably four years in Athens. In my case, um, I opted not to become a full member because I really, both of us do, David does too. I don't, I don't agree with infant baptism, which, you know, and they were fine. I mean, they, that was no big deal that I was not a member that I was there, but, um, but yeah, we spent a significant amount of time in a PCA church. So yeah, if we, if you want to talk about that later, I feel very comfortable to kind of share you know, what was going on, at least in those PCA churches that we were a part of. Yeah, I was in the PCA church when I lived in Atlanta as well, so. Okay, great. Uh, then then maybe you can both uh, both speak to that. So, so the kind of central sticking point to the article is that um, some people, and these people are mostly uh, female-identified people, say that there is a gender separation in the Christian church, particularly or more starkly, maybe the conservative Christian church. Other people say, maybe not really, you're making too much of this, etc. Um, what do you two think? Do you agree that the gender separation um, that the article outlines in churches exists? No, I will start. I, I think it does. Um, I think that the women and truth table who are talking about it really talked about it as a, as a fact that most churches do experience this to a varying degree. And I agree with them that this is just part of the experience of being in the church. Um, how much of a separation it is and um, how devalued women's experiences are depend on the church, of course. Um, and they're not, I don't think every single Christian church does this, but every church I've been in has had some kind of gender apartheid to it. Yeah, I think you see it a little bit more in 
You see, well, and I, and I, I mean, I say I can't really speak to because I haven't been part of a, an egalitarian denomination, right? So I've only ever been in complementarian churches, um, and but I think you do definitely see it more in complementarian churches, um, where you would have, right? So that would be any denomination that believes that men and women, though equal, um, in essence, are uh, are supposed to have different roles. So, and all these women, you know, in the Reformed tradition, they're also coming from complementarian churches. Um, so some of the things, despite the Obviously, there's no, it's a totally different racial angle for me, but some of the things they said in the episode we're going to talk about sounded very familiar to me um, mm-hmm. for that reason. And I do think, and and sometimes it's a more benign kind of separation, right? So the idea that there is women's ministry, a women's ministry in church, and then sometimes also, sometimes also a men's ministry, right? Some of it is kind of creating programs for men and women that are separate, which to me is the mm-hmm. more benign, benign side of it. But then you do also see some other types of separation that do feel more negative. Um, reading this and thinking about this episode we're going to talk about, I kept trying to think which which church have we been in that I felt that, like that there was the most kind of mixing between men and women. And actually what I landed on, this is really funny to me, what I landed on was our tiny, tiny, tiny um, Bible church in, in when we lived in rural Kansas which you might not expect, you know, it's a pretty traditional community, a small town, but in that church, maybe because it was a church plant and it was very small, but, um, you know, Sunday school and Wednesday night Bible study, all of that was co-ed. There was no separation there. Um, and part of it was just a lack of resources, right? We didn't have enough people to have a women's class and a men's class and all those different hours. But what that meant is that the men and women were mixing in those classes and learning together. And I think it broke down a lot of these walls that they're talking mm-hmm. about. So that was kind of an interesting thing. I didn't, I hadn't thought about it in that way before. That opened my eyes a little bit uh, to my experience there and something I hadn't thought about before. Mm. Thanks for that. Um, but what I thought was really interesting about um, sort of the structure of the article is that people seem to get upset, other um, theologians and, and pastors, um, notably and interestingly, I think, um, male pastors, because of the intersectional nature of Truth's Table. They, they sort of don't know what to do with these black religious women who are devout and clearly incredibly knowledgeable, um, all, all packing MDivs, as I think, I, I'm not sure if it's Akimini or Christina, um, but I, that, that phrase, that <laughs> they're all packing MDivs is just wonderful um <laughs> yes how uh how unapologetic it is um that the problem seems to be sort of at these this tricky intersection um i i almost feel um disingenuous starting with do you agree that gender separation exists in the church um because of course we do i don't think we would be the christian feminist podcast if we didn't um but i probably I, not <laughs> Yeah, probably not. Um, I felt like we had to start with that question to get to this intersectionalism question. Um, Why do you think that the coexistence of of gender and race um, in in these women's lives, uh, why are people confused by this? uh, What's making them, what's putting them off? I don't want to quite say making them angry, though I, I think there's some anger there. Um, I think, par- honestly, part of it, I think, is just it's dealing with 
expectations. So I think some of the people who were the, had their feathers the most ruffled by this, in part, part of it is because they maybe, you know, wrongly were not expecting it. You know, they could have some kind of unacknowledged expectations. They didn't realize they had racial expectations, you know, that um, they might have been surprised that there were these highly educated black women who, you know, could speak um, with great passion, but also use words like eschaton, which, by the way, I had to ask my husband what that meant. Um, <laughs> at least twice listening to Truth Table, I had to stop and say, orthopraxy? Like, I kept having to, you know, uh-huh. a couple of times I had to ask David to define terms for me. Because um, I knew he would know them off the top of his head. I could have looked them up, but I, I knew he would know I them. had to look up orthopraxy, too. Uh, so yeah. I'm just, <laughs> just going to be super honest about that. They, they're amazing. They, they know yeah. what they're doing. Again, so all, brilliant. all packing in divs. Um, yeah, but I, I just, I, I wonder if some of that pushback was to do with um, probably on two levels, maybe some of these male theologians who were responding with anger or frustration, maybe they, they are, maybe they're surprised when they encounter women with MDivs and maybe they're surprised when they encounter someone of a different race with, you know, this high theological mm-hmm. degree. And when those two things get put together, then it's like a complete explosion of expectations for them, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And so then they react with this, they have this extreme reaction. I, the whole time I was listening to it, I kept thinking, you know, we could probably say almost this exact same stuff with different language and in a slightly different tone as ourselves. And probably none of these same people would get mad. Yes. That's probably. And yes. that's frustrating. Like it's yes. frustrating. I'm sure that's frustrating to them because they realize that that is true. And so it's, it's hard. I mean, that's a hard thing because I think too, your people tend to be conditioned to accept things couched in a way that is familiar. And the way that we say things would probably sound more familiar to somebody like Todd Pruitt, who they talk about in the article from mortification of spin. But instead the voices that he heard talking about this issue were voices maybe that he did not expect speaking in a tone that he's not used to um, with a confidence and a boldness um, that maybe he's not accustomed to. And so then the reaction was just a little more intense. I, I told my husband too, I felt kind of bad for the truth table ladies with the reaction that happened to this podcast in part, because I said to David, I don't know that they were talking to the, any of these people. Yeah, like, I was you know, they talk the about thing. being black women speaking for black women. And I mean, obviously you don't have to be a black woman to listen. We're listening and they want people to listen. But at the same time, I don't know that they were sitting there trying to call out all these people who then got mad. You know, this no, was like episode, weren't. what, three, maybe four of their podcast. You know, I mean, they're very new. And to get this kind of extreme reaction, I, yeah, I think that there's something going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, you, you talk, Christina. That's all. Yeah, I, I was just um, pretty – I don't think I'm saying anything surprising to say that they're way more dynamic and charismatic than we are, for one thing. I, I yeah. had podcast envy. I really did. I was like, oh, my gosh, they're laughing and they're having fun and they're, you know, they're – they're, uh, they're charismatic. And I'm like, I want to be like them. Um, and some of the way that they delivered this prophetic, bold, bold message and all of their podcasts, um, you know, might have surprised people and taken them, um, yeah, just by surprise. But I also think that uh, they were mischaracterized by the Atlantic article, by at least the people that the Atlantic article talked about, uh, you know, their reaction against them. Because, the podcast was not, I mean, I listened to it a couple times to make sure, but that episode was not about male versus female preaching or being, you know, the leader of the church. 
that no. primarily, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was mischaracterized that way, you know, and I thought that was pretty stunning. In other words, they said what they said was actually, for lack of a better word, more conservative than most of the stuff that we've said on this podcast. Um, I mean, you know, absolutely. Some, you know, by by far. <laughs> that that's absolutely true. Like at one point, um, the the sort of debate that they're centering on is uh, some churches don't let women be greeters and that's not okay. Like because of who's right. allowed to be the public face right. of the body of Christ, like, which is not like, that's not women being pastors. It, it is, it's a, a fairly conservative stance. Um, I have certainly said much worse about, uh, about conservative or complementarian theologies. Uh, I can't give you episode numbers, but I know I've certainly ranted against uh, Wayne Grudem's taxonomy of what women are allowed to do in services enough uh, to count. And I just the, the number of times that I, uh, like what you said, Christina, thought either, um, you know, we've said things like that, or we would say things like that, or we've said things much more liberal than that. Um, and, mm-hmm. and haven't got, I mean, we get some hate mail, but you know, we don't get, uh, we don't get written up in the Atlantic and we certainly right. thank <laughs> God above did not get written up in the Atlantic after episode four. I, oh, I can't imagine. I, it's terrifying. I, I would have like, quit. <laughs> yeah. It's, yes. it's just, it's a little ridiculous to be honest. Um, it is. Okay, we need to keep moving along. So I, I want to mention one more thing that, that I, I think was particularly a mischaracterization. Um, I'm glad that you used that word, Christina, um, in the Atlantic article. This uh, pain quote where he says uh, that their conversation, uh, I think, calls it vulgar and says it was more heat than light. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh. I... <laughs> Okay, tell me, I agree with your groan, but tell me why you're groaning there, Christina. Well, for one thing, it's a podcast, right? It's not some sort of theological treatise. They're having a conversation with each other, and they're trying to let ideas flow. And to to make that kind of characterization just strikes me as, as just patently unfair to begin with. Um, plus, these women are just hilarious. patronizing, right? Yeah, yes. Really, and really they were, patronizing. they were just being... The penis microphone thing was just hilarious. You know, why can't you just laugh about that? Um, it was in great. In fact, there was a ton and of substance to what they were saying, you know, overall. So I just thought that was kind of low. And yeah. Also, and it, it, Oh, sorry. Go oh. ahead, Katie. I was just going to say, yeah, I think it seems unfair because it's a, uh, and I kind of was thinking the same thing. It, it seems like that they're being kind of maligned for not expressing themselves in the exact same ways that those particular men, or I think they mentioned one or two women who didn't like it either, that those particular people would have expressed themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's, this is, you know, I would never say this, so it's vulgar or, you know, but I think you're right, Christina, there is, I mean, medium matters. It matters what the Mm -hmm. medium is. You know, this was not, a an article in a journal or you know this was not a super long post on mere orthodoxy that somebody probably spent like you know a month writing right it's meant to be a conversation it's meant to be alive and you know um and again not to belabor the point it's meant to be mainly for other black women (laughs) 
Yes. So it's not, I mean, you know, I don't know that they should have to plan every podcast thinking we got to, we got to, we got to watch out for those white Presbyterian PCA ministers out there who might take offense at this. Right. You know, that's not right. the point. That's not who they're talking to. And I think they say that. I think they quote one of the ladies from Truth Table saying that in the Atlantic article, basically saying we're not talking to, you know, white male ministers out there. That's not really who mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're trying to appeal to. We don't you know? code switch is what she says. Yes. Yeah, we you. don't code switch, right? Well, you know, I want to speak to this for a moment because the Atlantic article brought up the controversy that was started by Tish Warren's piece in um, Christianity Today, you know, the the thing about um, not speaking with authority or you, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Um, uh, I, I would it, really love to do an episode on that sometime in the future. I'm I'm sort of trying to, to figure it out because I, I think that okay. whole long conversation is just endlessly interesting. It, it is interesting. And it, it's so funny because I just happened to just meet Tish in Pittsburgh when I was there over Labor Day weekend. And we talked about the article and the blow up about it. And she just was so surprised, you know, um, <laughs> it kind of just took her back, you know. Um, I don't think she meant the things that, I'm pretty sure she didn't mean the things that other people took her to mean, um, just from reading that article. Um, I I highly doubt that Tish is saying, you know, you shouldn't go on podcasts and um, give your opinion, you know. You're not speaking for the church in an authoritative way by speaking on a podcast, you know. (laughs) So that, that's just, problematic in all kinds of ways, but I don't think she's arguing that. But yeah, we should do some other episode on that. That would be really fun. Okay, so before we move on, I, I think we'll uh, we'll maybe come back to the PCA stuff later, but I, I think we need to, to get into the episodes. Um, but just before we do this, I'm, I'm really stuck on this heat and light thing. Um, and it, it seemed to me that, um, that one thing that was that was coming up um, with the critics of the episode is that they don't want these women to be angry that that they seem to think that anger doesn't have a place in a religious context or um, maybe more to the point that uh, female anger doesn't have a place in a religious context and the risk of yeah. sounding silly, uh, that kind of made me angry. I, I felt like uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, yes. I felt like there was a little bit of, um, you know, hey, hey, little woman, sit down, um, happening in in Payne's uh, critique there, and and the idea that these women don't have a right to be righteously angry about um, inequality in the house of God is just—it's so so off base to me. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's ironic because that was one of the issues that they brought up about, you know, emotions being associated with women and therefore, you know, verboten, you know, and here they're getting slapped down for the same thing. Actually having passion and feeling about the situation and, um, you know, they're getting criticized for that. And I think they're right that um, emotion, female emotion, is is maybe a little bit sidelined or, or scared of people are maybe scared of it in at least in more kind of traditional churches. But um, but as emotion goes, you know, if if any emotions are going to be accepted or celebrated, they're positive emotions, right? So that you know, nobody mm-hmm. maybe nobody cares if a woman raises her hands to praise or whatever, or she like happy cries at the baptisms, right? We were talking about crying at baptisms earlier, but you know. 
but but take your anger away from here. You just need to calm yeah. down. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think we should probably get into the episodes now. Um, we're we listened to two episodes in preparation for this recording. Uh, the episode Gender Apartheid, which we mentioned is covered in the Atlantic article, and the episode Strange Fruit, um, which deals more with um, racial violence and, and responses to racial violence. So Katie is going to tell us a little bit about um, the Gender Apartheid episode's central argument, um, and then we'll talk about, uh, since we're talking about listening, what we learned from listening to it. Katie, what was that episode about? So um, in this episode, it's um, you have the three main women who usually podcast, and then also two men um, from the Pass the Mic podcast, which is a different podcast with um, with black reformed men on it. And um, so it's Ekamini, Christina, and Michelle, and um, these two men, and I'm... <sighs> I cannot remember their names, and I should have written it down. Um, but uh, they, the main point about gender apartheid is, and they're by the way, they're defining gender apartheid as the segregation of sexes in the church. And primarily, um, they also, they're not talking about, you know, um, rules being used to segregate people in the sense of, you know, back in the early church when you would have women sitting in a different part of the church from men. That's not what they're talking about. That's not what they mean by gender apartheid. Um, but rather kind of um, outworkings of conservative Christian theology that lead to what they call a wall between men and women, walls between men and women. And um, there's a lot of different things they say, and I'll just kind of hit the the high points. Um, but they uh, one of the things that they keep talking about is that um, you will see Christian conferences and different theologians and different people now trying to deal more with racism in the church, which is a, a really positive development. But that that um, but that they're not also addressing what they call I think at that at that point they were using the term toxic patriarchy, so that. Um, you know, you'll see lots of talks of racism from the main stage of big Christian conferences, but you won't see a woman standing up there ever, right? Um, so it's things like um, women not being welcome to speak at conferences, um, reformed churches in particular, they say de-emphasizing emotionality. We mentioned that a moment ago, um, you know, de-emphasizing or, or not being really approving of celebratory praise or tearful worship seen as feminine. Um, they also talk about um, ways of service being separated so that not only are you not seeing women, um, up at the front, but, um, but it also, there are these expectations on the other side that men don't do nurturing tasks so that in a lot of these churches, you will never see a man, um, like keeping very small children in the nursery, for example, or helping to prepare food, for some kind of church event. Um, and so they, they also seemed really concerned at different points in the episode about the effect this has on children. What is it, what happens to the children when they never see the men in the church doing any nurturing tasks and they never see the women um, having a more visible ministry role? And that's one of the phrases they use is that they say there's not a visible presence um, in churches like this. Um, and I got frustrated because I read some of the criticisms of this, this episode. And it seemed to me like at least some, I know Pruitt did, they mentioned him in the Atlantic article, but that some of the people who protested basically said things like, well, but that doesn't really happen. 
And I'm thinking, except for it really it happened crazy. somewhere or they wouldn't mention it. Like, That's yeah, I, I personally have never heard of a woman not being allowed to greet at the door of a church, but clearly they've encountered it or they wouldn't mention it. Yeah. Uh, obviously it's happening church, somewhere. Can, can I talk about my PCA church from Atlanta? No. Yeah. Go for it. Sure. I, that actually happened at the church that I was a part of. I didn't realize what? until later that, yeah, that women were not allowed to pass out the bulletins at this church. You have got to be no, kidding. I'm not oh kidding. Oh my gosh, Christina. I know. Um, Needless to say, I'm not PCA anymore. And I know that that's not necessarily characterizing all the PCA. My brother-in-law is a PCA pastor and you know, and so on. But I, I know this stuff does happen. Yeah. They mentioned um, too, like women being not allowed to pray um, from the front of the church or to give a testimony, to give their testimony, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and which, and when we were in our PCA churches in Athens, Georgia, the first one we were in um, was a, an, a big established PCA church. We were there for a couple of years. Then that church birthed a church plant and we went to the church plant. And so we were in two different ones. But the interesting thing about that is that when we were at our second, the second one, the PCA church plant, um, women were allowed to um, help with communion for one thing. Um, so like husbands and wives would go up together and like, like one of them would hold the bread and the other one would hold the cup for communion time. Um, yeah. Um, and women were sometimes asked to read scripture. I did it a couple of times. Now I will say in all those cases, those, all those were married women. I think they were always serving with their husbands. Like David and I read scripture together, right. In that church, um, taking halves of the, the thing, but also, I think that those things happened in that particular church plant because they could, because that church wasn't official yet. Because mm-hmm. the PCA has rules upon rules upon rules, right? They're very mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's interesting. Centric. And mm-hmm. so, like, in the bigger church, the one that was already established, I didn't see women helping with communion. And I didn't see women reading scripture from the front stage. Those things didn't happen there. So it's funny. It almost makes me wonder if our second PCA pastor in the church plant was getting away with what he could before they became official. I don't know. Like, <laughs> well, but it's interesting. And I never noticed that until later. It's just funny. Like I never noticed that difference between the two. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an interesting thing and I don't know. Um, and I, and I want to make sure I get in everything. So one of the things they talked to about is that they said they feel like that in white circles, this gender separation is an outworking of purity culture. That was enormously. Yes. Intriguing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, let's talk about that. I okay, um, yeah. well, first of all, when when they started saying like, but white evangelicalism, I like I could feel my hackles go up. Like I could, mm-hmm. I'll I'll be real honest, I could feel myself getting defensive and saying like, ooh, what are you about to say about me? Which was a convicting thing once I stepped back and and sort of looked at where <laughs> that was coming from. <laughs> um, That's great. I'm just, I'm going to be real honest, y'all. Um, but Keeping I, it real. I, I'm trying. That's what they say on the podcast yeah, all the time. They're keeping it real. Um, and when I, when I was sort of deconstructing why I thought that, like, I agree that that comes from purity culture. The number of episodes of this show we have had centering on why purity culture is destructive um, yes. should, should illustrate mm-hmm. that. So... How come when they said that, looking from the outside, did I get offended? I mean, ob- obviously because because that's racist. Like because I, because what I was really thinking, um, if I admitted to myself, is like, 
who who are you to say that about me right that that's where that was really coming from like, yeah. so interesting, Victoria, because when they said that, I thought, oh, Victoria's going to love this. And then you did have that response. I That's mean, funny. I, I, I did love it. I agree with what they're yes. saying. I agree that it's true. But the fact that my first emotional response was defensiveness, I think, uh-huh. re- really speaks to the way that I, I have honestly in, internalized my own milieu and, and internalized that my white church is the church, right? That it is normal. Huh. Mm, oh, right, mm-hmm. right. This is kind of the standard, if you will. Like, um, yeah, that's interesting. And it is interesting that she said, I can't remember which of the three women was talking about this, but that, you know, that was not her background at all. Right. So within the black churches that she's been a part of, the purity culture thing was just not the same. Um, that was interesting to me, too, because I think I just sort of assumed it was going to be that way. Um, it, you know, in any kind of reformed church that they would have been in. You know what I mean? Oh, um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was interesting to me. But it, it clearly was the case that they'd been in churches where there was that kind of separation from the men and the, uh, separating men from women. And we, uh, that was a really funny part of the podcast, wasn't it? When they're saying, you know, I don't want you. What do you, you know? <laughs> I oh yeah, I, yeah. Her, I don't. Know? I don't want your husband. Yeah, yeah. That kind husband, of... You know, I'm not a predator. You know. So obviously there are uh, cases of in this uh, in the churches that they are a part of, and. They spent more time talking about that and more time talking about men not being in nurturing roles and more time talking about like Sunday school teaching than they did even mentioning teachers or pastors. Right. So this to go back to my earlier point about being mischaracterized, they were talking about a kind of low level apartheid, if you will, not a high level. Right. Meaning like leadership or, you know, they're talking about just scripture reading and you know, male Sunday school teachers and quit acting, treating us like we're immature eighth graders and let us be men and women together and, you know, be mature with each other, you know, and not be separate. That's what they're talking about. And how anybody could disagree with any of that flummoxes me. I, I agree. Yeah. The whole thing was imminently reasonable. And, and for that imminently reasonable discussion about day-to-day workings in the church, about, you know, this sort of just in and out life together body of Christ stuff that we all do and should do the the fact that that imminently reasonable day-to-day discussion got turned into this sort of angry vulgar thing Mm -hmm. is just like obviously there's a problem yeah well and I think I think too you know and 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 I think this is something that um, and I'll say it now because this is a good place to say it. Um, I think one reason that 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 happened is, and 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 this is interesting to me. I didn't expect to hear it because I knew going into the podcast that these guys were complementarian. They were from Reformed churches. But um, one thing I think that happened is that they used a lot of words and phrases, right, that are also very common in secular progressive culture, yes, right? That's so they're correct. talking about toxic masculinity, toxic right. patriarchy, gender is a construct. They say that at the beginning of the, mm-hmm. you know, the gender apartheid episode. And I think and, honestly, some of these... extra biblical construct, which I think is incredibly important that they include that word. 
Mm, yeah, that's true. That's true too. They, you know, they're, so they're using some of these different terms. And honestly, I think some of these people who got upset about it, what happened is they heard these words that they are used to immediately being turned off by because they are common in secular progressive culture and kind of just didn't listen as well to the I rest. think that's exactly right, Katie. I think that's exactly what happened. They just kind of hit yeah. a button and then, you know, and, and they, what the actual was being said was lost. Yeah. And, and it's, and I was surprised. And I mean, you know, me too. Like I was surprised to hear some of those terms being used in part because I've never heard anyone in a complementarian church ever use any of those terms. Now, again, maybe that's my limited racial experience. Maybe um, it's more common in, um, within black churches to use some of those same terms. Um, and that's why I think they were wrongly characterized as like, egalitarians or as thinking women should be pastors when they never said that is that I think some of those it's like it's like people critics were hearing the terms and then imputing onto them all the theology that sometimes goes with those terms instead of just going okay there's using these terms to make a point about how they're feeling and what they see happening in the church but they're not trying they're not freighting those terms with all of the politics that sometimes go with with those terms if that makes sense what I'm trying to say it makes makes perfect sense that makes total sense and and actually um I, we need to move on to the, the next episode uh, after this, but I wanted to say that I was made incredibly comfortable by those terms. Um, I hearing things like gender is a construct and toxic masculinity and sort of, you know, women's studies terms um, from a religious context, um, that that's something that, that I try to do with our show is kind of bridge that divide because um, I don't really think it is much of a divide or should be one. And, and so to hear them do both of those things, I thought, like, yeah, okay, like, th- these are my people. Like, they get it. Yeah. <laughs> they understand what's yeah. going on here. Um, That's right. Yeah, at yeah. that moment that, um, that I thought, we need to invite them to do a joint podcast for, and do it for both of our platforms. Wouldn't that be fun? I, I would love to do that. And I, um, I, I think we're a long way from that. I think we, we probably have some, some more work to do ourselves first. Um, but yes. yeah, I, I, I do sort of have that on a, a, a far away to do list. Good. Yeah, that would be, uh, would be cool. Hey, let me just um, say like two more things. Sorry, that from this, because I know we need to move on, but there were a couple of other things that were really big deals that were to me central to the whole thing. One is that, um, is the big question. One of the guys, and I, I found their names, so I'm very sorry, to Tyler Burns and Jamar Tisby. These were the two guys who were on the show. Um, one of those guys asked a great question, which he said, he asked them after they kind of introduced these, these topics is, is it the theology that's problematic or mm. is it the outworking as influenced by the culture? That's the key question, right? Because a lot of the people who criticize it seem to be seem to think they were saying the theology was the problem, but they don't say that, right? The whole time in the podcast, they're saying we're not saying that women should be pastors. That's not what we're saying, right? Because that's not what they believe. It's not about that. And so the conclusion they all come to and what they all say is it's not the theology. It's the way that it's worked out as influenced by the larger culture and by Mm -hmm. traditional, you know, Christian American white church culture, you know, um, and one of the big, the big points they made, one of the times that they talked about that is they were talking about how, um, God gives gifts irrespective of gender. And so, um, and everyone should be able to use their gifts in the church. And one of the things I really appreciated is they made a fantastic point, which is that if you don't give women, um, or people in general, but they were specifically talking about women opportunities to use their gifts in their churches, they're going to go where their gifts are appreciated. And they make the point that sometimes that will lead those people into theologically sketchy places, 
right? And so they kind of are making this argument that if we want to keep women, you know, in serious Bible-believing churches that are solid churches, they need to be able to use their yeah. gifts, even if their gift is teaching. And then they said, yeah. we're not saying this means that every woman should be able to be a lead pastor. That's not what we're saying. Like, so, I mean, they're not, they're not asking for everybody in the PCA to suddenly turn egalitarian or something. That's so not what this is about. Um, mm-hmm. A couple other things. They talk a lot about slippery slope arguments. People will say, well, we can't have like women deacons because it's a slippery slope, you know. And then next thing you know, we'll have pastors who are women. Um, And they talk about how it's very frustrating when they said it's wicked. This is a direct quote. It's wicked that the slippery slope comes into play with ovaries and breasts, but not with enshrining misogyny in the church. (laughs) (laughs) Which was amazing. Um, And and it's it's true. I think that the slippery slope argument, you know, we teach to our students in college all the time is a fallacy. Um, And in that Atlantic article, there was a great quote by, I think, Kathy Keller basically saying, just because you take one step, it doesn't mean that all the steps have to happen. We're complementarians. Like, you know, it's not like, um, and and another thing I think they made the point is they talked about ordainable just meaning has a penis. That's what they said. That's what the whole penis microphones things were about. If you don't know what that's about, listen to the episode, listeners, Mm -hmm. listen to their episodes. Um, that the penis shaped microphone, by the way, was the point that I was like, oh, I'm in, I am in for this. I will listen to all of these episodes. Like, yes, because that, like, I mean, that's something I would say, come on. Like, this is absolutely a hundred percent something I would say. And Katie, you're right. Probably not get called out on it. No. Well, and, and that's the thing is, and I think part of it is the passion. It's the passion that they're speaking with and the boldness, mm-hmm. you know, and that I think that makes the difference because I think, too, you know, your average male pastor or theologian is used to having to always express himself in these very reasoned ways. And so probably doesn't know what to do with boldness, particularly from a woman, um, most particularly from a woman of color. Um, and you know, I think that, um, it was one of the things that they, they didn't quite say this directly, but one of the things I think they were talking around a lot when they were talking about that ordainable just means you're a man is that in a lot of, um, complementary churches, I think, especially in the PCA, they, you know, they would say a woman can't have a position where she is in authority, you know, usually teaching authority in some kind of authority over men. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the thing is, though, that different complementarian churches interpret authority to mean different things. So like in my, by the way, Southern Baptist Church, which maybe this is going to shock everybody. Every time I tell my sister-in-law about my church, she's like, what is this church? You guys are like a unicorn. At our Southern Baptist Church here in Houston, um, we have we have deaconesses. Um, It's not made a huge deal of. In the Southern Baptist Church? I I was raised Southern Baptist and like. Honestly, there are like pictures of old people going through my head right now who, if they were not already dead, would die because you just said that. <laughs> we, I mean, it's true. Like, but I think that one of the things is I think at our church, and I mean, we're complementarian. You know, we don't now, I mean, one thing that is also a little different, I mean, you know, we, we absolutely have women pray from the front of the church. We have women read scripture and one of our worship pastors is a woman and she's called worship pastor which, you know, again, some other Southern Baptist churches, now their heads are exploding. Um, But I think one reason we have deaconesses in our church is because our church seems to interpret authority as teaching authority or decision-making authority. But deacon is a a serving role, right? And so they don't, we don't have an issue. There's no issue in our church with women serving as deacons because 
you know, our church doesn't interpret deacon as authority, but in the PCA, they do. In the PCA, deacon is seen not not as just a serving role, but also somehow a role with authority, which is weird to me. I don't really get that. They're not making decisions, but okay. Um, and so I think that that's where they're getting at when they're talking about all this ordainable stuff, is that they seem to be functioning in churches where anything, any position, all the way down to deacon, serving roles like deacon, has, quote, authority, so women can't do it. And that it, it, and that was interesting to me. I do think in the Southern Baptist Church, even though we have and have had have a, 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 an earned reputation for being extremely conservative, um, because Baptists are Congregationalists, there's much more variation. Whereas in the PCA, you're working within a presbytery system with tons and everything is like voted down to the last degree, so that there is much less variation from um, congregation to congregation in what happens. And I think maybe they're they're kind of seeing that too. Um, Anyway, it, it, it was a great episode. I think it was it was super interesting. Um, and just at the end, some of the things they said, they tried to give some action things, like what can you do if you want to try to fight this? Um, and they talked about church leaders, um, you know, to, should try to take risks, take risks like asking a woman to pray in service or asking men and women to teach children together, right? Um, take risks to try to break down these walls. Because what they say early on is, how can you love your neighbor when there are walls between the genders? Yeah, I, I thought that was really great. Um, thank That's you. all. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> thank you, Katie. Uh, that was wonderful as always. Uh, this is, sorry, listeners, we're just going to have a long episode. Uh, so let's move on to the Strange Fruit episode, um, which is about racial violence. Christina, can you uh, I know there was a, a lot of great stuff in that episode. Can you do your mm. best to summarize its central argument? Sure. To my mind, the podcast was dealing with the making the argument that the evangelical church is too passive in the face of systemic racism and ongoing and increasing movements of white supremacy, right? So what they do is talk about the various acts of violence against black people where black people have been lynched or, or killed by police. Um, they talked about the Charleston nine, um, Dylan roof, killing the people in the church. They talked about Philando Castile. Um, and then a woman named Charlena Lyles, who I had not heard about until they mentioned her. And the episode was just filled with their sadness. Um, many of them were in tears just talking about, these things, why do these things keep happening, and why can't the church be a unified voice against these things happening? You know, and it, you just hear uh, the plea coming from all three of them, like, why, why can't we be unified in our, you know, opposition to this horrible stuff, you know? And, and so it was just a powerful episode that I wish that I could, wish that I could get everybody to listen to. I don't know how else to put it. So loved it. I, I loved it too. Um, I, I listened to that one twice in, in, I was planning on listening to more episodes, um, in addition to these two, but I just, I was so moved and so, I know I've said this word already, but so convicted, um, of, of my own complicity, uh, that I I had to listen again, and I um, the the thing that I took away from it is just we we all have to be involved. 
Um, my my yes. my experience uh, listening to it. I I mentioned this um, before we started recording, but I I want to be sure and and mention it on the air as well, just um, in terms of my desire to be as emotionally honest as possible uh, on this episode. I, um, as most, if not all of you know, work in downtown Minneapolis. Um, I listened to this episode both times I listened to it on the city bus going from my uh, home in a first ring suburb to my job downtown. And at one point they discuss the uh, lynching by police. They, they use that verb a lot, um, which I was uh, first taken aback by. We can come back to that verb. Uh, lynching by police of Philando Castile, who was a public school worker um, in Minneapolis. And they talk about the fact that Philando Castile had one tattoo on his body and that it was a tattoo um, of the Twin Cities symbol, uh, that he was, he was devoted to this city and this city murdered him. And I, mm-hmm. was, and I was sitting there on that bus watching the Minneapolis skyline outside the window and just sobbing on the bus. And I know that the people across the aisle were like, who is this weirdo crying on the bus? But I just, I couldn't, I've, I've lived in this city for four years. Um, it's a wonderful place. It's a diverse place and a multicultural place. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I know it has its problems. But to, and to hear that, um, to hear he loved this city and this city murdered him about a place that I consider my home um, was just, I, I really couldn't handle it. And I, I thought, like, th- this is my problem. I mean, it, as, mm-hmm. a, as a human being and as a Christian, this is my problem. Mm-hmm. But, but, sure. the, but yeah. the degree to which it is my problem really was, was brought home to me by them talking about um, a, a verdict that that is still um, still resonating in in my city. Mm-hmm. I, I walked by a, a Black Lives Matter march. Um, it's Sunday night when we're recording this. Uh, Friday on my way home from work, I walked by a Black Lives Matter march um, with people wearing Philando T-shirts. So this mm-hmm. is something that my city is is still dealing with, and I I just my takeaway was. Uh, I am complicit and I have a responsibility and I need to do something. Yeah. And, and what to do. Boy, that's hard to know. Right. I'm sure we can get into that, too. But I, I love uh, Christina had a really strong prophetic voice in this episode that this. Uh, of course, I love her name. Yay. Um, the prophetic <laughs> voice from, you know, Christian saying that the church is not afraid of the right things. Right. We should be afraid of God. <laughs> when we yes. racism in any way and instead we're afraid of speaking up or you know actively doing something about this as a church um and god is just disgusted with the the lack of justice um standing up for it you know it's just appalling we just that somehow we can't do it i mean at one point she even said something like uh the, the evangelical church has no moral credibility because we have a weak social ethic true why can secular humanists say that's jacked up and christians can't say that yes she I, says at one I, point i thought yeah. that was super true yeah 
Um, and she said, uh, she talked about white fragility and that um, white evangelicals apply our fragility to God. That like yes. we, we think because we're scared of stepping up and saying racism is systemic and we as white people benefit from systemic racism, that God is afraid of those truths too. And God is not afraid of those truths. No. I, I was set that cut me to my core y'all I just I thought like that is why it has taken me three years to make this episode like honestly mm. I, I was so scared I'm still scared of doing this wrong but I was so scared of doing this wrong that I stayed silent for way too long and I and and that's absolutely why I I was not trusting God enough to say like just try this and it'll be okay mm -hmm. because you know it's not my job to reconcile people God will do that um, whether sooner or later but it is my job to open my mouth with what little privilege I do possess and say racism is systemic and I benefit from systemic racism and I right. want to say that I love and value my brothers and sisters in Christ enough to say that that is wrong. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Preach. I love to, when they were talking about how, um, when it was when they were talking about Christina, what Christina mentioned that we should fear God, um, more than we fear, you know, well really anything we should fear God more than we fear anything else. Loss of mm -hmm. privilege, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. But they also were talking about how, um, I think this is when we were talking about Charlena Lyles, but they were, they said our humanity is not contingent on our behavior. And they were talking about how, um, you know, the, so often the, the temptation in the wake of a police shooting or something like that, um, is to, is, is people will say, well, that person had been arrested before, or, you know, in an attempt to try to make it not racism, then they'll refer to other, other things, other parts of the situation, right? you know, but what they were basically saying there is that, Okay, but we're we're not meant to be to show humanity and love and respect to other people based on their behavior. I mean, that's not what God does with us, right? God doesn't love us because we do the right things. Um, you know, Jesus died for us because we're messed up to the core, not because we did everything right. And I mm -hmm. thought um, I loved what they said when they talked about how um, death is not natural to humans. Like, you know, um, before the fall, death was not a part of the scene. And so, you know, they were saying we should grieve when anyone dies. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we shouldn't just write off, oh, well, you know, that person was, you know, probably had done something wrong. And that's why that person got shot. Like, we should stop for a minute and say, this is a tragedy. Right. As it is anytime someone loses a life. But particularly when there's any chance that this person was killed because of discrimination or prejudice. And, um it made me think a lot, a lot, a lot about my own responses to these different stories. I had to stop. I had to pause the thing and look up everything I could find about Charlene Lyles. Cause like yeah, you Charlene said, Christina, wow. I hadn't, I hadn't read that story. I didn't know wow. anything about that story. And, um, and you know, and I had to look up a lot of things and that's the thing is again, not realizing how ignorant I am. I didn't realize until I listened to this episode that you can use lynching to mean not just being hung up, strung up. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize yeah, that that is, yeah, that it, that any kind of um, violent death, be, you know, um, to do with prejudice or, or racism, I didn't realize that. I kind of, I thought, well, hold on a second, but he was shot. I didn't uh -huh. even know that. I did not even know that that term has a wider meaning now and that is used in a wider way. And probably the reason I don't know that is because I don't listen enough, you know, right? I don't um, interact enough 
with um, with my black brothers and sisters in the church. And so, yeah, it was enormously eye opening and um, created some good conversations in our house. Um, Cause even though my husband was not listening with me, I was kind of telling him everything I was hearing and the things that were the most um, thought provoking to me. And so we had some really mm-hmm. good conversations um, around this episode. Yeah. And the, the example that they gave of Charlene Lyles was so effective because then they spelled out the particularities of her story that she was pregnant, that she struggled with mental health issues, that she had called the police and said, I'm afraid of you, but I need your help. How um, incredibly, I, unbelievably heartbreaking. I, oh. Yeah, yeah. And then she, then they shot her, claiming that she had a knife, which, why would you shoot somebody just because they have a knife? You know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. When, uh, when she there. already told you that she was terrified. Yeah. yeah, that she was terrified. So, of course, she has a knife, right? I mean, she's a weapon because she's afraid, Right. But to say to the police, I'm afraid of you, but I need your help, and then open the door and let them in, and then they shoot her. Uh, and then there, and the women on the podcast are saying, you know, that they, they killed that child. That's the, the state aborted that baby. Is the the, ex- the, the exact baby. words they used, and I'm so glad they did too, mm-hmm. because I Me mean, too. you know, you look at the the racialized conversations around abortion in this country. Um, the the idea that um, that often evangelical um, Christians cite that abortion has not strayed from its eugenicist roots because black women uh, get the most Mm. abortions. Um, And and that's a a different conversation for a different time. But the point that they made was that here is a black woman who is doing it right. She, She wants to bring this baby into a safe place and and everyone wants to live in a safe place, and everyone deserves a safe place. Um, and and the state aborts that baby. Like she just yep. can't, she cannot win for losing, and it's horrible. Yeah, it was yeah, really yeah. horrible. Very so heartbreaking. And you know that part of what they're doing in this podcast is just saying this, the names, right? Say the names of these people because that's what you do. Make their names known. Um, but then the recognition that this is just the tip of the iceberg, right, that we, we have begun in recent years, especially since the falsity of the post-racial America was exposed fully what, for what it was. But we, we now recognize that the tip of the iceberg, that this happens all the time, that, you know, not just by police, but just, you know, systemic racism ending in deaths. And it, it, it's they responded with the amount of motion, emotion that was appropriate to the topic. And you could just hear the tiredness and the, and the anger and the frustration in their voices. And I, I benefited from that because they were so real. And I love too that, and, 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 and I can't imagine how difficult this must be, but you know, they, they maintain the hope that, that there will be justice because, because of, of Christ that, you know, that there will ultimately be justice, even though, and yeah, you were talking about their kind of emotion and, you know, saying things like, I don't have enough energy to be angry at this point, you know, or, um, you know, or being relieved to be crying about it because it means that, that they're not totally numb. One of the ladies said that I'm glad I was crying about this because it doesn't mean I'm totally numb to this. I mean, it's just so hard. It's hard to hear because, and I can't imagine having 
all those. Because it's easy for me to say, oh, everything's going to come right in the end because of Jesus, though that's true. It's a lot easier for me to say that, too, when I've I've never experienced anything like this. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't ever fear for myself or my children or whatever when I'm out around and about, you know, um, so I just, the depth of faith, I think that they have mm-hmm. to, to have, you know, to have all these feelings they're talking about and to still have hope in mm-hmm. ultimate justice well, through Christ is amazing. Funny. I, I've taught African-American literature for a number of years. Um, I haven't been doing it recently because somebody with even more passion for the topic took over the class, which is great. Um, but I loved it because it just I, I think black women are amazing. They're my, my favorite. I because I just think, my goodness, the amount that you have been downtrodden and yet continue to have hope, uh, continue to fight, continue to do the right thing. There are just so many black women out there who are just doing the right thing. You know, and and so that was why I was so excited to hear about Truth's Table, because I was like, yes, we get to hear the voices of these women who are already I admire so much and because I feel that they are so strong, you know, and, and to me, that's a sign of strength to be able to be hopeful um, in Christ in such a difficult situation. You know, they, they don't they're not cynical and they know the Bible so well, you know, and they know what it means. Uh, what it promises to us and the need for social justice that it teaches. And I just, I was inspired by that. Me, me too. And, and not just to have hope, which they definitely do and is incredibly admirable, but to create something um, out of that pain that is beautiful. Uh, they, their podcast is, uh, you said you had podcast envy, Christina. I do too. <laughs> um, their podcast um, is beautiful. I, I yeah. thought that especially the, the ending of the, the Strange Fruit episode, which um, takes its, uh, its title from the poem that eventually became a, a Billie Holiday song, um, mm-hmm. the, the episode ends with um, them saying the names of um, people murdered by the police and also reciting the poem. And, mm-hmm. and I, I just thought that that was so artful and beautiful mm-hmm. and, and a, a sort of... It, it's a raised fist to to create something so gorgeous out of such pain. It's you know you're not gonna get us like we it's it's uh we're we're still gonna fight. We're still go- there is still beauty yep. and and holiness in the middle of all of this pain. And that's what African American literature is at its very best. And there's a lot of really great stuff. Is this blues impulse? Ralph Ralph Elson called it that to, you know, to finger the jagged grain of your pain and, and then to, to squeeze from it uh, near comic, near tragic lyricism. He said that that's what the blues does. You know, it's not avoiding your pain. It's not, you know, acting as if it doesn't exist, but transcending it through embracing it, but making it into something beautiful. And I, you know, that's what the best art does. And uh, that's what this this podcast does. Uh, and I I think that's a, a wonderful note to transition on uh, to our final segment of every episode, the passing on segment, where we give you recommendations of things to read, listen to, or experience. Katie, you go first. So, um, going with the kind of theme of this episode. I have recently realized, um, which I should give a little background, my husband and I, we love 
old kind of little golden books and things for our kids. And I've only recently realized that our kind of vintage taste in literature has in some ways completely whitewashed our kids' bookshelf. And I didn't, I didn't realize that till recently. And I thought, you know what? I, everybody in my child's books are white. And that was not a conscious decision. Um, that was just kind of, you know, uh, or, I mean, a lot of them feature animals, right? Um, I mean, they're not all even have people, but, um, and so we've been all that to say, we've been trying to, I've been trying to diversify the books we read because, um, you know, one reason I was glad that we moved to Houston is so that my daughter would see all kinds of people all around her all the time. And she does. It's amazingly beautiful. Um, our church is and our, our city are so diverse. We live right outside Fort Bend County and it's the most diverse County in the nation. Um, more than LA, more than New York City. Um, and But also I feel like the books that we read should reflect that too. And I talked earlier um, about my own childhood kind of affecting some of the things that I know about race or think about race. And just to give a really sad example, I did not know until a couple of weeks ago about the classic book, The Snowy Day. Uh, it's a classic children's book. I love, um, it. I love The Snowy so Day. Oh, okay, yes. I y'all, this book was never read to me as a child in school or at home. Um, I had no idea what this book was. Um, so for listeners, if you're like me, if you had a very white childhood and don't know anything about Ezra, Ezra Jack Keats, it's by Ezra Jack Keats. It's called The Snowy Day. And it was basically the first children's picture book to feature a black protagonist. Um, and so in the book, um, Peter, the little boy, has a totally typical snowy day. He makes snow angels, you know, um, he plays, he makes snowballs and it's a beautiful book. So that's one of my two recommendations, um, today is Ezra, Ezra Jack Keats, The Snowy Day. Um, it's going to be and, a commemorative stamp now too. Did you see that? I know. It's great. It is? I'm so excited. Um, it's just, it's a gorgeous book and, 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 and see y'all, this is what, this is what blows my mind. We're reading the book and my daughter turns to me and she goes, why is he black? Wow. And like no no animosity. She's just curious. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, maybe have we never read a book before that features a black child? Like I and I'm I'm horrified, right? It's just the kind of stuff, you know, again, it's unconscious. It's stuff that I don't think about. You know, we have lots of Curious George and Clifford the Big Red Dog and, you know, lots of books about little girls. Um, I think probably all white little girls, you know, now that I think about it. I mean, so we're trying to diversify and trying to do better, right? Um, so that's one of my two recommendations. Ezra Jack Keats, The Snowy Day, winner of the 1963 Caldecott Medal. Um, the other is a book that we found at the library called Beautiful Ballerina, um, which sounds very froofy. Um, it's not really. Um, written by Marilyn Nelson and with photographs by Susan Cooklin. And this book, the text of it is a poem about, um, about ballerinas dancing and um with the refrain beautiful ballerina you are the dance but the poem is specifically talking about young black girls um dancing ballet and all of the pictures in the book they're not drawings they're all photographs of young dancers from the harlem dance theater um they're beautiful and they're all different ages um my daughter's favorite part is in the back of the book there are photographs and they tell you about each real girl whose pictures are in the book and what she likes to do the things that she likes to do in her spare time and where she goes to school and stuff. And um, I love the book because it's giving my daughter, my, you know, my, my white daughter who's growing up in a, in some ways, you know, coming from very white parents, it's giving her and us, it's giving a, a chance to see um, young black girls doing something that she thinks is cool 
something that she's interested in. Um, you know, and I think historically ballet has been a very white space too. And so it's kind of opening some doors for her. And, um, it's a beautiful book. It's called beautiful ballerina by Marilyn Nelson. Katie, does she know about Misty Copeland? I, um, you know, I do, I don't know that I've showed her a video of Misty Copeland yet. I should. Um, and that's the thing is she, it's interesting. She's, she's gotten interested in, in lots of different types of dance. So we've looked at books and books and watch videos of um, flamenco dance, for example. We had a book about a young girl from New Mexico who's a flamenco dancer. So she's interested in dance. And that's honestly one of the reasons we picked up this book. And then once I picked it up, I said, oh, this is good because this can do more than one job, right? She's learning about ballet, but she's also seeing different faces. She's learning about race. She's seeing the beauty in every race, right? And so, um, yeah, that's good. That's a good reminder, Victoria. I should show her a video of Misty Copeland. Christina, what about you? What recommendation do you have for us? Well, I will say that if you haven't heard, if you're one of the three people in the world who hasn't heard Billie Holiday singing the song Strange Fruit, you should run, not walk, to whatever source you get your music from and play that song. It's haunting. It's beautiful. I played it for my students when I would teach Gene Toomer's Cain because there's a poem in there that has a lot of reminiscence similar type of uh, imagery to that song. It just, it's haunting and you'll never forget it. And then my second recommendation, um, the night we were supposed to originally record this podcast, I went to a poetry reading at Wheaton by a poet and a new poet, well, newish, uh, contemporary guy, obviously, Tahimba Jess is his name. And he wrote a book that just won the Pulitzer Prize called Olio, O-L-I-O. And I have never been to a poetry reading that was like this one. It blew my socks off. Standing ovation for a poetry reading. Okay, that's all you need to know. Uh, the beginning wow. of the collection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't see that every day. Um, the beginning of the collection is first the poem. The very first poem weaves in the names of uh, black churches that were burnt to the ground um, in you know history of Civil War forward. And then the entire collection just kind of deconstructs the exploitation of the minstrel shows that were popular at the turn of the century by um, writing poems about the different people who were in these shows and black performers at the time. I, and I cannot do justice to describe what these poems are like. He reads them forward and backward and sideways, and there's, there's syncopated sonnets. I, you just have to look him up on YouTube and get the book. Sounds great. I will check that out. Thanks, Christina. Um, my recommendation is also a poem um, that I thought of while listening to the Truth Table episodes. Um, as Christina said, one of the acts of violence mentioned in the Strange Fruit episode is the, um, the shooting of the Charleston Nine by Dylan Roof. And one of the things that um, I think it's a Kimini says is that this is a particularly egregious act of violence because it makes us think um, that nowhere is safe if we're not mm. safe in God's house. Um, and it, it made me think mm -hmm. of um, mm -hmm. one of my very favorite poems to teach. Uh, it's called Ballad of Birmingham by Dudley Randall. Uh, and it's written uh, in commemoration of the uh, bombing of the First Street Church in Birmingham in 1963. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's in ballad stanza, and in the poem, 
um, a child is asking its mother uh, if it can participate in the Freedom March, and uh, its mother says, um, I'll, I'll just actually read the stanza. Uh, no, baby, no, you may not go, for the dogs are fierce and wild, and clubs and hoses, guns and jails aren't good for a little child. And then she says, instead of going to the march, you can go to church because church is safe. Um, and of course, the, the church is bombed and, um, and four girls, uh, four very young girls, um, do lose their lives there. And so I, I was thinking about that poem and thinking, um, you know, really no, nowhere is safe if, if the house of God isn't safe. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm going to uh, end this episode as I begin it by saying, uh, we all have work to do. Thank you for Amen. listening. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We want to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you want to just say hi, do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this episode and all our other episodes, the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Bremner is our intern. For Christina Bieber-Lake and Katie Grubbs, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in about a week when we'll discuss season one of the BBC series The Crown. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.